0: TalkShoe. Recorded live.
1: Bandwidth for the Sunday Talk is provided by TalkShoe at talkshoe.com. This is the Sunday Talk, episode 26, for April 12th, 2009, the Easter episode. The Sunday Talk is brought to you by GoToAssist Express, the easiest remote support service available. Try GoToAssist Express free for 30 days. Visit tech techpodcast. Well, good afternoon, good morning, good evening, or good day, everyone. Welcome to the 26th episode of The Sunday Talk, a weekly podcast that looks at the week that was in the Australian news, politics, media, food, health, you name it, we're going to be talking about it here on The Sunday Talk. Uh, You might notice the audio is a little bit different uh, in terms of the audio quality this week. That's because uh, being Easter long weekend, uh, we've actually managed to get a couple of... uh, Sunday talk stalwarts together in the same room, so there's no Skype problems to worry about tonight, just a whole host of other problems that are sure to present themselves over the course of the evening. My name is Matthew Kapelki, the host of the Sunday Talk, and joining me here around the microphone after what ended up being quite a sumptuous meal is Mr. David Hutchison. David, good evening. Good evening, Matthew.
0: Good evening, everyone. Yes, the Aluminium chef has uh, done himself proud, let's just
1: say. Oh, I, I dare say you uh, have done yourself proud. So, just for the listeners' benefit, uh, we're uh, recording this on the uh, on actually Saturday. The ironical, ironical is that a word? I don't know. It is now. We'll run it yeah. we'll in it now. <laughs> I'll fix it in post. Uh, the uh, The irony of the whole situation was, is for a show called the Sunday Talk. We're actually recording on the Saturday this time, but I'm sure it's Sunday somewhere in the world, so it kind of qualifies. Uh,
0: it will be in a couple. Of, it will be in an hour or so.
1: Okay, well we've uh, we'll come back in an hour, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, we'll still be here. Yes, very true. Uh, so it's the eleventh of uh, April, uh, two thousand and nine, uh, not the twelfth, even though this episode is going out on the twelfth. So uh, tonight we've uh, managed to get myself and David into the same room, and David, you prepared quite a nice meal. Uh, what was on the menu tonight, Mister Aluminium Chef?
0: Well, we started with some uh, some old favourites, and the we started with the, the old favourites, and and. Some new things. Uh, first up was the famous spaghetti bolognese, which I actually use a Napolitana sauce for, and threw in, throw in some extra additions for. And I think I think it makes a beautiful flavour. Uh, we also also did some also did some mini pizzas. Uh, basically, some slices of pepperoni, spring onions, uh, and regular onions. a Bit of garlic powder, a bit of mozzarella on top of an English muffin. Under the uh, in the oven this time because I don't have my usual griller available. Yeah, I think they worked quite. I think that worked quite well, and followed it all up with the um, followed it up with a mixed vegetable stir fry. It was uh, what did I have in it? I had celery, capsicum, onion, spring onion, carrots, uh, all in a honey soy. Mar- oh, mixed into a honey soy marinade and served on rice noodles.
1: Oh well, it, uh, it certainly tasted good. So uh, it was a very impressive uh, spread, all the same, and that's the kind of hospitality you get when you come down to Brisbane.
0: Oh yeah, it's been it's been a long standing thing. I was when when I started hosting, when I started hosting recording sessions here for the Itaco. I thought it would be uh, polite of me to uh, actually offer up some catering instead of just instead of just buying it all in. Uh, and yeah, I think I think. Uh, I think the, the feedback I've heard about it has been largely positive, and uh, yeah, it, it, it does give you um, does give you uh, some inspiration to try new things uh, as opposed to just cooking for yourself.
1: Yes. Now uh, it was very good cooking. <laughs> Um, now, one thing, ladies and gentlemen, you would have noticed is that the audio quality tonight uh, is a little bit different. That's because, uh, whereas normally we would, uh, David be on his uh, USB headset microphone and I'd be on my normal microphone up in Harvey Bay, tonight we're recording around the one uh, microphone. So uh, the audio quality is a little bit different. Uh, we're hoping uh, it's not too much of a difference to, to be in any way distracting. Uh, and to be honest, I think it's quite nice, even though normally we try to go for a dead, quiet studio feel. Uh, we've got the sounds of a Brisbane City uh, evening uh, just emanating through the window, uh, so you can hear the occasional car, the train. There's uh, there's been some rain this evening, so uh, all up, I think uh, it's it's probably a nice little package you're offering tonight here on the Sunday talk. Definitely. Yeah, so uh, tonight on the episode we'll be uh, having a look at uh, the biggest news announcement of the week, uh, the uh, announcement that the government is going to go it alone with a new national broadband network. So we'll be having a bit of a look at that this evening. Uh, we'll also be talking about uh, the situation with North Korea and that missile launch uh, from from last Sunday, even though they to seem convinced to try and tell us that it was some sort of satellite being put into orbit. Uh, we'll be talking about that. We'll also be looking at the, New Queensland Shadow Cabinet, uh, and also just talking about a few other bits and pieces that have, uh, have been happening in the news the last couple of days. So uh, should be a good episode. And as always with things here on the Sunday Talk, tonight's program is brought to us by the wonderful people at Citrix with their fantastic remote support solution, GoToAssist Express. Now, one of the things that... Uh, I always end up doing is you get the phone call uh, from friends, family members, whoever it might be saying, excuse me, can you fix my computer or oh, I've got a problem? And you end up going through the laborious task of having to d- direct them over the phone, click here, do this, do that. Uh, no, 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 that's not what I mean. You've, no, 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 look. And, and in the end, you think, oh, it'd just be so much easier if I could sit down in front of the computer and it would take me two minutes to fix this because I, I kind of have an idea as exactly where I need to go. Uh, David, I'm sure you have been in, in many a situation like that yourself.
0: Oh, yes, quite often. Yes,
1: yes. and so it's, uh, it's a very handy thing uh, if you can just get in front of it. Sometimes it's not practical. Yeah, it might be distance. It might be uh, timing factors. It might be a whole host of reasons. Or alternatively, you might uh, work in a corporate environment where you're offering IT support to a large customer base and you want to be able to uh, offer a, a cost-effective way to service remote PCs. Uh, well, Citrix have the solution, uh, a program a wonderful program called GoTo Assist Express. Uh, by just installing this on uh, remote computers and then you can access it through any sort of web browser, be it Internet Explorer, Chrome, Firefox, Safari, on either PC or Mac, uh, you can uh, remotely access computers and you can control the desktop and you can fix up any support problems that might have come your way. So that is the power that Go to Assist Express offer you. Now, I know you're not going to take my word for it, so that's why I'm prepared to offer you a free 30-day trial of Go to Assist Express. No features locked out. None of this. You get 10 mouse clicks and it drops you down to a buy now button or anything. You get complete total use of the program for a full 30 days. And uh, at which point you can decide to either purchase it and continue using it Or you might decide to cut your losses because it's not exactly what you want. But go to Assist Express. To use this 30-day free trial, all you need to do is point your web browser at www.gotoassist.com slash techpodcast. That's gotoassist.com slash techpodcast for your free 30-day trial. And we thank Citrix for their support through GoToAssist Express of the Sunday Talk. Well, this week, Kevin Rudd and the Labor Party made history here in Australia, at least for anyone who is in any way interested in downloading legal movies over BitTron. Oh, did I say that? No. Uh, by announcing uh, that the National Broadband Network tender process uh, ended up amounting to nothing. Uh, by having uh, all of the submissions basically scrapped on the grounds that no one really could provide what the government had originally outlined and in true Labour Party fashion they've decided to go it alone with a $43 billion uh, fibre to the home slash fibre to the premises depending on which way you want to describe it uh, national broadband network. Now of course this shocked quite a lot of people, at uh, least of all uh, the Telstra board who suddenly realised that their little copper wire network was going to be obsolete in about a decade. Uh, so it was. Was certainly a very uh, red letter day for uh, broadband nuts like myself, and anyone I suppose in Australia who uh, uses broadband uh, to to do any sort of broadcasting or any sort of heavy usage. So, David, you were following the uh, broadband announcement. Are you looking forward to ditching your ADSL for uh, VDSL?
0: Oh yeah, it would be a it would be a brilliant innovation when this comes along. I say when, but yeah, it's if you if you're going to be Cynical about you, probably still be thinking more along along the lines of if it's going to take quite some time to build this thing and quite a lot of money because we're basically rebuilding. Well, uh, rebuilding is probably we're basically building a fiber optic communications network essentially from scratch. There may be some existing infrastructure that can be incorporated, but to to run glass fiber up to the wall plugs of every home and residence business premises and every building basically in Australia, that's going to take quite a lot of work and quite a, lot of, quite a lot of effort, quite a lot of money, quite a lot of infrastructure as well. So it's not going to happen overnight.
1: No, I heard one person describe it as the Pantene of the internet, that it won't happen overnight, but it will happen. <laughs> but uh, no, it's it's. Uh, I think in terms of big scale, I think certainly you don't get much bigger than this because let's backtrack a little bit to, to 2007. Let's go back in time <laughs> two years. Yes, and uh, and look at where we were at two, two years ago. We had a Howard uh, Liberal Coalition government in power. Uh, the Labor Party had come out, the, the newly reinvigorated Labor Party under the direction of Kevin Rudd. And it said that they were going to uh, get quite into this uh, concept of building a national broadband network. And they compared it to things like the the, uh, the Snowy Hydro Scheme and building railways. This is big 21st century infrastructure building, nation building work. And uh, at the time, the talk was about a fibre to the node network. Uh, now, the difference between what was announced in 2007 and what went through the broadband tender process and what they've announced last week is – the amount of fiber optic cabling that's going into the system. Under the fiber-to-the-node network, this is how I, as far as I understand it, and anyone listening, please feel free to correct me if I've got any of my facts wrong, but... Uh, fiber to the node basically took you up from the fiber optics from the central hubs at the uh, from the like sort of uh your your central buildings and your server rooms and that through to the exchanges in the in the neighborhoods from that point on that plugged into the old copper wire network that's currently owned and operated by Telstra and would then run through the standard copper wiring up to your telephone sockets and and, and that in the home now what this meant was is that you didn't have a true fiber optic network while the speeds were able to go good guns throughout the fibre optic network, what you ended up with was a situation where once it got to the exchange, it dropped back to the old copper wiring, and that's basically got a theoretical limit of about 24 megabits a second downstream. So it meant – and then from that point on, as it went through the copper wiring, the the speed dropped off quite considerably the further away it got. And uh, Whereas now, what's been announced is uh, a fibre-to-the-premises network where, as David just explained – the cop, the, the copper wiring, the fiber optic wiring, or cabling, or tubing, whatever you want to call it, goes all the way from the central servers and and and, and the international pipelines all the way to the wall socket in your home or your business. Basically, any fixed installation, building, of uh, or dwelling of any sort, it'll run all the way through. Which means that. As per the speeds announced, the original broadband tender was looking at a minimum of 12 megabits a second downstream, but now they're saying it'll go up to 100 megabits per second.
0: Very impressive, and I'm hearing similar figures being quoted from existing networks overseas that have already been built to this particular standard. So in a sense, it's playing catch-up, but uh, if we do if we do manage to catch-up, that would, it would, in theory... Uh, standards in much better stead as far as uh, international communi- as far as communicating overseas would be considered.
1: Oh absolutely. I mean places like uh, Korea and, and, and most of Asia are already running $2030 a month uh, connection fees for a 100 megabit fiber optic network. So what we're basically getting uh, is, is essentially what most of Asia already experienced and in a lot of ways will bring us a lot further up the OECD table for broadband penetration, general speeds, availability of access. But the thing that I really have to – I mean, I don't like getting on my hobby horse at the best of times here on the Sunday Talk, but I feel I have to uh, – is the, is the whole sense of timing with this. Here we are in 2009, and what we're about to do is embark on a massive 8 or 9-year, possibly 10 or 11-year rollout for this fiber-optic fiber-to-the-premises network. Really, this should have been done a decade ago. This really should have been done in the first or second term of the Howard government. There was no reason why this thing should have been delayed. And my only fear with the amount of money that's being spent with a grand total of $43 billion, which is probably a fairly rough estimate, it'll probably blow out like most government contracts tend to do, uh, is that by the end of it, we'll have only just managed to catch up with where the front runners are at right now when the project's starting, uh, and I just feel that my only fear is is that all this money's going to be spent on something that we'll uh, still be a little bit behind the eight ball on.
0: Yeah, that's 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 what I was getting at when I mentioned playing catch up. It's uh, going to is It's going. It's going to have to. It's going to have to be an ongoing process. Mm. As far as upgrading is concerned, as as far as getting this thing into the getting this thing into the power the uh, established overseas networks are are, uh, are involved with because it because we're we're in this particular standard now, and there's going to be there's going to be other new standards coming in in the meantime that are, that are going to be rolled out and and adopted in various various parts of the world and. Uh, if we don't have, if we don't build in the capacity to adopt these new technologies, then we'll basically be right back where we started.
1: Oh, absolutely, and one of the, then to play sort of the flip side of the coin. One of the big advantages we get with something like fiber to the premises is that it is by putting in a, a complete top-to-tail fiber optic network, it does give you great expandability. At the moment, we're talking about 100 megabits a second, which is about four times faster than the current top speed you can get if, you've got a, if you're have got, if you really close to the exchange and you've got a really stable ADSL 2 plus connection. You can get about 24 megabits a second. So 100 megabits is about four times faster than what we can get right now. But here's the wonderful thing. If you go fiber optic network wiring for the whole of the country, What this means is is that it's just simple hardware upgrades at the user and the server end that allows the speeds to increase because apparently my understanding is that right now there are trials going on in certain parts of the world where they're testing get this one gigabit per second fiber optic connections. That is moving. Oh, it is, and that's using the same fiber optic cabling that's about to be laid under the National Broadband Network over the next decade. It's just server upgrades and end-user modem network interface card upgrades that are allowing them to get this with already being talk of in the next 2 to 3 years trials beginning on what is currently perceived as the theoretical limit for fiber optic and that is 10 gigabits per second
0: man that that's that is even more impressive that 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 could in theory that could in theory download a whole DVD in 5 to 10 minutes couldn't it Oh, a lot quicker than that. Oh, ten, ten, 10 gigabits about well, ten gigabits a second. A DVD is four point seven gig. That would be about. Yeah, you know, I think about it. Probably be more like two or three. Would that Would that be a little more close to the mark? Quite
1: possibly, or two or three seconds. You're, you're looking seconds? at. Seconds. You'd be looking at ten gigabits a second. So you're looking at about what two gigabytes a second? You'd be able to pull down on that one to two gigabytes a second. Bang. There you go. Well, this is me doing very rough maths in my head. Actually, let's work it out. Let's work it out. Here we let's go. go. We've let's got go. a calculator here. Let's, let's go into let's a calculator. dial it up. So if we're saying 10 gigabits, um, so we're talking 10 gigabits uh, divided by 8 roughly, that gives you 1.25 gigabytes a second that you right. can pull down. So you're looking at about five seconds to pull down a whole DVD. Yeah, about uh, a, a whole standard DVD, four point seven gig. I don't know how much a blue, don't know how much a Blu-ray is. Or about four can... times that much. So you'd still be looking in under a minute. Impressive, so not very even impressive. Enough time to click the button, then get yourself comfy and, and then press play.
0: <laughs> yeah, it it'd basically work like that. That, that. It would, it would make,
1: it would make uh, video on demand services so much easier to use. Well, that's exactly right. And this is where you have to look at the economics of the situation because initially it's it's going to be an eight to 10 year rollout and the government have already put up a, a rather predictable figure of $4.7 billion, which just happens to be the original amount that they were coughing up to build the fibre to the node network. Because I think what happened is Senator Conroy and the rest of the people in the telecommunications department realised that $4.7 billion wasn't going to buy in much of a national broadband network. So $4.7 billion on the table right now, let's get to it. Now the rest of the 47 billion, $43 billion, while the other $39 billion has to come from somewhere else. And there is a talk of a couple of different ways. One of the most prominent ways is which are uh, asking existing telecommunication networks and ISPs, so on, to, to buy uh, shares, equity shares in, in the new network. So if every single ISP coughed up a couple of hundred million dollars and Telstra and Optus coughed up a few bill each, you'd suddenly have your $40 billion there to build the network. Uh, and that's where we hit the interesting situation, with regards to this. Is suddenly, by having a 100 megabits connection into every single home. and that's theoretical limit. That's if you're under if, if really good connection. Blah blah blah. There's obviously a lot of things that could affect that coming well, down. The may vary. That's exactly right. And but at the end of the day, what will happen is is home users will have access to a much more, much greater degree of bandwidth than what they've ever had possible. And what that brings with is is applications. What can you do with all of these megabits going into your house? Suddenly it replaces your telephone. Suddenly it replaces your television antenna. It replaces the radio. It replaces your standard internet connection. All of these various aspects suddenly roll into one, coming through one pipe into your home. And this also means that a lot of non-traditional mediums, media, media and mediums have 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 a great say in it. Like ABC Radio, for example. Suddenly, don't they can shut down a lot of their radio stations if in theory if they wanted to, because every user in the world, in, in, in the country, can, can gain access to it through the new national broadband network. And non-traditional media, such as, say, Fairfax, for example, uh, suddenly now, if anyone's been following their web presence, they've been increasing quite consistently the amount of audio and visual content they offer. And suddenly, we're in a situation now where by having a high-speed broadband network, the the, the range of uh, new media that can get involved uh, is, is actually quite exciting, and uh, there's these new new forms of distribution, new forms of uh, access for, for to finding customers and and advertising as well. I suppose at the end of the day was where all this will go to.
0: Oh yeah, it, yeah. It, it's it's a uh, yeah. There, there would still be a it would still be a place in it for having the right content in it though, mm. and because uh, it would still be it would still be the content that would drive the. Uh, take up the services.
1: Well, that's always the way you you, you look at uh, the first round of broadband here in Australia. You, you want what's known as that killer application. You want the, the the reason why people adopt broadband. And what was it in the late 90s, tw- early 21st century? Napster, LimeWire, downloading illegal music. That was the killer app that broadband needed to, to get any sort of traction because up until that point people were browsing the web, checking email, chatting on ICQ. Think back 10 years ago to where we were at with the internet. And what you suddenly saw was Napster exploded on the scene and people wanted quick ways to share music. And broadband was there and that's what pushed people to, to wanting to, to, to adopt broadband. And I think what we need to look at also then is, is what is going to be the killer app that switches people over to the new national broadband network. Because at this stage there's no word on what pricing is going to be, uh, the theory will be that by having a, a government-owned, independent-regulated, uh, only wholesale-only company, which is what will run the National Broadband Network, that it won't be the horrendous mess that we've got with Telstra where they're a wholesaler, but also they have their own commercial interests and have to turn a profit.
0: The interesting thing is that that's a National Broadband Network Company, uh, for to use a descriptor as a possible name, was described in some respects as being similar in scale to Australia similar in in scale and application to Australia post which once upon a time uh, before it before its corporatization was part of the old postmaster general's department mm. alongside what is now telstra
1: yeah and uh, we've seen how that all happened and how that worked out and which is why where- the fact that Senator Conroy has flagged that there's going to be a, 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 over the next 12 to 18 months some big uh, investigations from a regulatory sense to look at how the new national broadband network company will operate, the fact that they've already said there's no one telco or ISP that will have a lion's share of ownership. I think there was a figure bandied about during the week of no one party being able to own more than 10 to 15% of the, of the shares available in the company, which I think these sorts of sense. things make sense because – you you don't want another Telstra. Oh hell no! Although on the popular broadband forum Whirlpool, there was a few names bandied about for this new national broadband network company. One person said Telstra Two, another person said Telecom because that's what we had when the days were good. And- well, yeah,
0: tel- yeah, tele- Telecom is the uh, Telecom is the uh, phones division of the old Postmaster General's Department. I was I was mentioning a second ago that is actually that is actually one part of. What is now Telstra? Uh, it was merged with the, in, in the early eighties. I forget which uh, I forget which government set it up. Whether it was Fraser or Hawke, it was merged with the Overseas Telecommunications Commission, mm. and that formed the that formed the uh, the megalith we know and love to hate these days. Oh, yes.
1: Well, Telstra. I mean, we've mentioned Telstra a few times because, of course, the one thing that the NBN now does is completely freezes out the current. Copper wire network that we have here in the country, because Telstra had uh, traditionally had had formed a, situ- a relationship with the government where they played a real love hate type thing. They uh, they love to throw heat at the government and say, "Hey, we're going to do everything we can to to interfere and and, and just generally be a bad neighbour for the, for, the, for the federal government." And yeah, particularly particularly they
0: were, uh, they, were they were particularly uppity at uh, not being allowed to do what they wanted to do and charge what they wanted to do to do it.
1: Oh, heaven forbid. Heaven forbid that Telstra be allowed to do what they want, charge what they want, and there should be no uh ACCC consequences or anything like that. But uh and I think that the NBN announcement this week by Rudd and Conroy isn't an, is very much a response to that. Because they basically said to Telstra, Okay, you wanna you wanna play Hardball? Well, uh, we can do it right back. We're gonna build a whole new network that's completely separate. And while Telstra have been quite openly publicly uh, open and public about oh, this is a great move for Australia and, of course, Telstra would like to be involved. Uh, You have to be honest, right now at a boardroom level uh, on that Tuesday with Telstra, they would have been spitting chips because this basically puts a very finite limit on their copper wire network. Uh, But the interesting thing is is that what's happened with the new national broadband network is that this will happen in parallel. We'll still have the copper wire network. Every the, the eighty. This, this changes nothing in a short term. I mean, in the next four to five years, not much is going to change. Yeah. Uh, because they'll still have to roll out ADSL-2 upgrades to exchanges. There'll still be a big push for the uh, for, for ADSL uptake uh, because it's going to be at least two to three years, I think, before there's any realistic uptake of the new broadband network. Take long, it'll take that long just to get, even get the basis of the infrastructure in place. Hmm. Which is where Optus stepped in later in the week. I think it was about Thursday when they stepped forward and said, well, we've actually spent a, a few billion dollars over the last few years building some fiber optic network around the country, and we'd love to talk to the government. Again, Optus probably trying to stick it to Telstra. Yeah. Uh, Why why not kick a dog when it's down? And they've said, hey, look, we'd love to find a way to incorporate our existing fiber optic network into the new national broadband network where appropriate because it means that there'll be a much quicker uptake and and, and ISPs who can invest can start getting a much more immediate return on on their investment.
0: And you have that infrastructure in place to build on.
1: That's exactly right. Because uh, one of the best comments I heard came from Internode CEO Simon Hackett, uh, who happened to say that his view seems to be that what needs to happen is, is the uh, they need to start on the fibre optic network at the residence or the premises and work backwards. Lock it into fiber optic networks and existing networks where possible and basically feed it down rather than start at a central source, say, for example, Canberra and work it out like a, like, like a network that way. The, the idea seems to be work it from the premises backwards so that the idea is, is that where appropriate it patches into existing networks so that people can get on and get immediate speed benefits and so on and then see speed increases over time as more of the network comes online. Because I don't think what you'd want is a situation where you have to wait for the last piece of the puzzle to go into place oh, yeah. no. before there's any realistic uptake of it.
0: The funny thing, while you were describing that, I just had the analogy of a—I just had the mental image of a spider building its web. Mm. It, it doesn't—it doesn't start from the middle. It doesn't start from the middle. To work out. It, it's, it gets the. It gets its. Gets its initial framework in place, then works. Then starts spiraling from the outside in. Yeah, and then. When it's it's where it's in the centre, sits in the sits in the centre and waits for a fly to, come, fly to come along blundering into it. Yeah. yeah. And that 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 struck me being a very logical way to go about building this new
1: network. Well it makes sense because for one of the things, there's the network will only cover ninety percent of the country. Uh which your population country. Which so it's is landmass. Landmass, which is Good. interesting because if you look at the amount of the amount of the country that isn't really got a heavy population, uh, 90% is not too bad, with the other 10% being taken up with next-generation wireless like EVDO and LTE, various new uh, wireless networks that are coming online overseas. Sorry about that. And uh, so the situation, as far as I see, is, is that by starting it at, at the extremities and working your way inwards means that you end up with a situation where a lot of regional customers who traditionally are the last uh, sort of left to the last mile. If at ever. If at ever. And uh, they'll be the first ones to come online. Presumably part of this you'd have to sort of have some sort of central pipes going out to various areas to begin with and then you'd start hooking up your regional parts because what what that means is you're not starting with Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane and working your way out from there, which traditionally your city folk uh, are always the first ones to get them and the bush people go, oh, well, we've been left out again. Uh, because also what that means is, as Simon Hackett made the obvious comment, target areas that don't have ADSL 2 at this stage. That way people who've got access to ADSL and ADSL 2 can stick with that for a few more years, but people who still don't have decent broadband can immediately go onto the new broadband network and, and, and have that situation where they're kind of getting comparable speeds to the city folk who then... Uh, switch over from copper to fiber optics. So a lot of things are going to happen, I think, over the next couple of years. And this is actually going to be something that's very exciting to watch because I think the other aspect is content. Coming back to content again, I look at us as a podcast producer. One of the aims of the Sunday talk is that we'll eventually be uh, or had originally intended to be, but was a video podcast where we'd use video capabilities of Skype and we'd send out a video feed every week. But broadband bandwidth just held us back. There's no way we could do the video show the way we want to. On the connection speeds, we have like you're on a 512, I'm on a 1.5. I think VTOL's on an 8 megabit down in Melbourne. So I don't think um, we've got the speeds there. But once we get this national broadband network in the early part of the next decade, um, we'll – Quite easily be able to do it, and suddenly this levels the playing field.
0: Yeah, and and it would also mean it would also mean uh, it, it it would also mean that uh, there'd be, there'd be uh, new content. It, it it also opens up the scope to develop new content and get it and get it uh, distributed far more easily, far more readily.
1: Absolutely, because the distribution is always one of the things that's held us back in this country. Yeah, uh, you've got to pipe into every home. That's you've got. 20 million people there that you can suddenly access and say, hey, I'm uh, I'm producing something, and they can all get it. It's a level playing field. Uh, so combine this with uh, where Vodafone, Optus, Telstra are going with their wireless networks, and suddenly you, you'll end up with a very competitive landscape, particularly for Telstra, who I think by about 2015... Are probably going to have to realize that the future for them, although I'll realize it a lot sooner, but I think by then it'll have become apparent to customers as well, that their future lies in their cable network and their next G wireless network. I think that's really where Telstra's future lies.
0: Because, yeah, particularly because the uh, that um, 3G. Wireless network was being was being touted in some of the early media reporting about the National Broadband Network as filling in the gaps for the extra 10% of the population who are who would be outside the reach of the uh, network's capability. Uh, I hear one of the original I, I hear one of the first test sites for this is going to be in Tasmania, and just for the and just by coincidence, the uh, area being area being considered for test would be. In, in part of the ten percent. Yeah, well, that was one of the media reports
1: I saw on, about this on Tuesday, Wednesday. Mm, well, it makes sense to to start it off in Telstra because much smaller geographical in size. You mean? Yeah, it makes uh, much smaller much smaller land mass easier to roll it out. You can get a lot of the bugs ironed out in the system, and uh, it makes a lot of sense. So that they get their new national broadband network starting in July, uh, which is just insane. Uh, I'm very jealous. Uh, so we might move the Sunday talk to Tasmania in a couple of months.
0: That would be a very, that would be very interesting to try because we'd have we'd have, we all have our various commitments here.
1: Well, it'd be to be a very big commute. Oh, very big commute! But at least we'd have access to superfast broadband. <laughs> Yeah, so it's uh, it's going to be interesting to see where this goes. I think this is going to be a big story to watch uh, because obviously here at the Sunday Talk, uh, following broadband dev- development here in the country is uh, is, a, is a big uh, thing for us and we'll certainly be charting this over for the next oh, 100 to 200 episodes of the Sunday Talk, assuming we last that long. Sh- big assuming we last that long, yeah. yeah we might get <laughs> shut down for some various reasons. But, uh, yeah, we'll be following the National Broadband Network. But I have to say in terms of sheer guts – Gall, size of vision, Kevin Rudd, Stephen Conroy, you guys get 100% for me, 10 out of 10. Uh, the National Broadband Network is more than we could have ever hoped for, and uh, I look forward to, to charting its progress. Well, while we're still on federal politics, uh, this last week the Reserve Bank of Australia met on Tuesday for its once-a-month meeting uh, to decide whether or not interest rates uh, should stay where they are or drop again. Uh, Now, obviously, everyone with a mortgage or a personal loan was sitting there praying, please, please, please drop the official cash rate. Please, I don't want to have to pay so much on my my return. Uh, But uh, thankfully, our prayers were answered. And the RBA came out and said that uh, they'll be dropping the rate down to another twenty-five basis points. But sadly enough, the banks don't seem to be that interested. David, you have a mortgage. Yes. Were you happy that the twenty-five basis point drop occurred? Oh yeah, you're, you're always happy that you're always happy when you hear about a, a,
0: cut, in, a cut in interest rates. It means you're not having to means you're not having to put so much of your pay packet towards the mortgage. You can you can uh, make use of it in other areas, or if you or if you like, build up a buffer that you can that you can uh, fall back on if rates skyrocket again. But yeah, it is the it is a uh, it is a uh, continuing source of disappointments, not just for me but for many 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 mortgage holders if their bank or financial institution. Decides to pocket the difference for themselves, as what as basically happened this week. Uh, Commonwealth Bank and I think it was ANZ announced they were only going to pass on ten points out of the twenty five basis points that Reserve Bank cut from their rates. Uh, Re- National Australia Bank basically came out and said rates unchanged. Mm. They pocketed the they pocketed the lot themselves, and claimed it was because and claimed. It was going that they were doing this because the cost to them of doing business uh, was what's the word I'm looking for not 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 necessarily unchanged. But they were the
1: cost of credit was so still still high.
0: Yeah that that was that was that that was the uh, term they came up with, and uh, it really wasn't a surprise to see the uh, tabloid shows a couple of days later. Uh, come out and say, "Hey, hang on a second! It's actually gotten cheaper for you guys to do business in the in, in the last few months or so. What's the story here?"
1: Yeah, oh, I was. <laughs> I don't think uh, I don't think it was the most convincing of narratives that the banks came out with uh, that they were crying poor and that uh, they couldn't afford to pass the the rate decrease on. Uh, unfortunately, though, what this does, though, is, um, is show up one of the big problems I think that we have uh, with the oligopoly of the big four banks uh, in relation to, to government uh, fiscal uh, budgetary related matters. And that is that the RBA can cut rates as much as they want. But at the end of the day, because the regulation's not there, the four big banks can essentially really do what they want. They don't have to pass on, as this week has ably demonstrated, if they don't want to pass on a full 25 basis point cut, they're under no obligation to. And the most the government can really do at this stage is to have people like Wayne Swan or opposition leader Malcolm Turnbull come on the line and just say, please, please pass them on, pretty please.
0: Uh, th- I think the uh, I think the words very were using were more to the effect of it would be a good idea if they did
1: <laughs> yes well the funny thing is is that and much like um, Telstra with the national broadband network uh, the banks can play hardball as much as they want but I think what this week has shown is that the government especially this Kevin rudd labor government seem quite prepared to play hardball with uh, with organizations and, and 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 businesses that don't Exactly go the way they want them to. So while the banks at this stage can sort of say, "No, we're not passing it on," and the government come out and say, "We think it's in your best interests too," uh, I think the banks have really got to watch out because uh, there could be some regulation reform around the corner.
0: Yeah, uh, it, it's it's been a long-standing issue practically ever since the um, practically ever since not the 2007 campaign, the 2003 one I think it was Four. 2004. Ah, uh, the joys of the calendar. <laughs> the and, joys of election cycles. <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. they're not fixed. Yes. The, so it, it often it often drifts up and down the calendar. <clears throat> Excuse me. But it was in that it was in that campaign that uh Prime Minister Howard was asserting the independence of the Reserve Bank and uh that it was basically and that it was basically the oversight body and the uh banks could could uh, be permitted to raise or lower rates independent of, independently of the Reserve Bank's uh, jurisdiction, and I think that's basically uh, come back to bite the Rudd, come back to bite the road government uh, in in this, in this current term because the banks have been had been given this had been given this uh, license by the uh, by the previous government of the day. They're basically uh, carrying on they basically on in in those terms, and it would basically require the uh, government of the day to pass legislation to reassert the Reserve Bank's regulatory role in order to uh,
1: make any effective change in that area. Well, that's right, and but at the same time, you do uh, the big push with the independence of the Reserve Bank. I think is more uh, has everything to do with independence from government interference, and and and, and sort of less to do with. Uh, unfortunately, this is as you pointed out the downside to it that. They are so independent that they're independent from the oligopoly that is the big four. And, uh, yeah, so that's why we're in the, in the sorry little mess that we are. But suffice it to say the official cash rate has dropped another 25 well, basis I think it's a record low, didn't they say, 3%. Yep, it's
0: 3%? it's 3% even now. The lowest it's been practically in all the time they've
1: been keeping records, more than 49 years. Well, that's pretty good. And although there has been a, a fair bit of talk about around the commentary and about the fact that... What we're likely to see is the only reason they dropped another 25 basis points was to get it to, and this is just a theory, um, to get it to an even three percent. But I don't think we're going to see any more rates cuts in the next six to eight months. I dare say this could be the last one for 2009.
0: Yeah, I I I'd I'd agree with that. I get the impression it's uh, reached. I get the impression it's reached a plateau as well. Uh, They've basically said they're going to wait and see how these. Stimulus packages, how well these stimulus packages work, and also what's going to be coming up in the budget next month. Gee, that's that soon, that's soon already. Yes. And uh, they will basically, uh, will basically decide after that's come down and been uh, put through the parliamentary process whether or not any uh, further movement on rates will even be necessary. They still have that 3% buffer there, but. No, I don't think I don't think they'd be going any. I don't think they'd be going too much lower either.
1: But then again, asked me twelve months ago if I was going to see rates drop over four percent by ne- this time next year, and I would have said you're joking.
0: I wouldn't have anticipated it either.
1: So anything could happen. I don't. we have still a long way away from where the Americans are at at the moment with regards to their um, zero to zero point two five percent variable cash interest rate.
0: Oh yeah, that was that was the that was a massive chop when it came to it. They were that went from about. down to 0.25 in one hit. That was a big drop. I think Mm. it caught quite a few people by surprise.
1: Well, I suppose that's where we're at with this global financial crisis. There's uh, just so many governments and organizations trying to do their thing to help stimulate the economy and get some sort of consumer confidence in there. And one of the big – it's either stimulus packages or interest rate cuts. And for countries like America that are already borderline zero – we're still a fair way off from that, and thankfully, though, we're in a better shape financially. So I don't think we'll get down to the zero percent interest rate anytime soon.
0: No, although I am—it is interesting to note that there is some there is some media reporting and/or media reporting this week. Some of the pundits are saying there is light at the end of the tunnel. Let's just hope it's not an oncoming train.
1: Well, just as we finished wrapping up episode 25 last Sunday, the uh, North Koreans obviously were listening to us because they were just waiting for us to go off the air so they could get out and uh, and do something which would cause a major, and when I say major, I mean a major international ruckus because it was about 1pm uh, last Sunday that officials in Japan, South Korea and the United States were able to confirm that North Korea had launched a long-range rocket which appeared to have passed over Japan. Now, North Korea said uh, it was intended to launch an experimental communication satellite, but uh, the U.S., uh, South Korea, and Japan said the launch is actually the test of a, uh, a what's called a Taepodong two missile, which is designed to carry a warhead. We're talking nuclear here, of course, as far as Alaska. So, David, are you suddenly thinking it might be time to build a fallout shelter?
0: The short answer to that is no. We are far from returning to the bad old days of mutually assured destruction. Uh, this TyPodong two missile—they uh, say it can reach the United States, but only, that, is, that would only be the Aleutian Islands, Alaska. That, that's the only part of the United States could reach, from what I've seen from what I've seen of the uh, mileage charts. Australia is a lot closer than that, but. I honestly don't think there would be that much to fear from this missile. From what I've from what I've been hearing, it hasn't exactly been running as well as could be expected. The uh, the reports this time around uh, infer that it fell into the sea, either the sea of Japan or the Pacific Ocean on the far side of Japan, and that's about as far as they've reached so far. Interesting. Interesting that the uh, North Korean government claimed its communication satellite launched. Uh, that was the uh, that was the uh, line trotted out the first on the first missile test as well. That it was communication satellite launch. That is the uh, they're basically saying that so, so they wouldn't be accused of lobbing missiles into there because they're supposed to be uh, supposed to be uh, they're supposed to have had a test ban treaty uh, slapped on them basically. So if they say it's a communication satellite, then they can say we're not testing ballistic missiles. Uh, that said, there hasn't exactly been too much heard out of these supposed communication satellites so far, as, uh, as has been reported. And uh, the uh, consensus of uh, consensus opinion from the punditry is that there are, there are no satellites. And if there were any payloads in these missiles, they're at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean.
1: Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And there's just a couple of things I'll Offers a sort of a comment in, in response to that um, is that yeah the, the United Nations Security Council did pass a resolution in 2006 number one seven one eight and the specific demand was directed at North Korea that they suspend all activities related to its ballistic missile program. now yes North Korea did come out and say yes we're just trying to launch a communication satellite and yes every single part of the the, the the rocket ended up in the ocean nothing no sort of payload or anything got into orbit or, or got any further. But the simple fact of the matter is, is that the way the U.S. seemed to have responded, in particular Barack Obama, is that if it um, looks like a ballistic missile, talks like a ballistic missile, and sounds like a ballistic missile, then doesn't matter if it had a communication satellite in it or a nuclear warhead; it's a ballistic missile, which is in direct contravening of uh, Resolution 1718, and uh, that seems to be where a lot of the hurt at the moment surrounding North Korea seems to be coming from. Mm-hmm. Now the interesting thing is, is China and all of this um, ha, ha, has had an interesting role because they have sort of been—they're the, they're the country that have kind of been trying to push their own international uh, standing by trying to be the one, the big ones, to come forward and say, "Hey, let's bring North Korea to the discussion table. Let's bring them into into, into uh, diplomatic relationships and, and and so on and so forth." But suddenly, this is this situation with North Korea. I think China have got a lot to lose uh po- diplomatically and politically in terms of the capital that they've been able to build up uh, with regards to North Korea because uh, North Korea's diplomatic process is really China's baby
0: yeah yeah uh, it could be argued that China is basically North Korea's only friend on the international on the international. Diplomatic well, they have a lot
1: of do a lot of trade with them, don't they? As well, and they, uh, I mean, North Korea. The only reason there, uh, my understanding is, is that there's a lot of trade that goes on between China and North Korea. A lot of uh, supplies are sent into North Korea by China, and China alone. Mm. So, China really have. I mean, yes, they have a lot to lose, but also they got a lot of bargaining power with North Korea. One would think.
0: Yeah, yeah, it'd be, it'd, but uh, us here in the West aren't exactly privy to how. Or if at all that bargaining power is being applied.
1: Oh, absolutely! And uh, at the end of the day, um, it's in—I suppose it is—in China's best interests to uh, uh, sort the North Korea situation out. But I've got a quote here from uh, uh, President Obama where he was talking to a 20,000-strong crowd outside uh, a Prague castle that he was at where he was giving a speech. Uh, The the, the comment said, uh, This provocation underscores the need for action, not just this afternoon at the UN Security Council, but in our determination to prevent the spread of these weapons. Rules must be binding. Violations must be punished. Words must mean something. The world must stand together to prevent the spread of these weapons. Now's the time for a strong international response. And of course, at the time he was giving a uh, a speech on non nuclear proliferation, nuclear
0: proliferation, um, yeah. which was
1: kind of ironic, given that exactly what was going on at the same time with North Korea. Mm-hmm. It's almost. I heard one person, I think it was one of the reporters on ABC's PM program, who commented early last week that uh, North Korea's timing of this. Uh, ballistic missile launch has actually really helped uh president obama's stance on uh, uh nuclear nonproliferation because it gives him a very clear and, and great example to point to and say hey yeah. look this is what can happen if we don't step on this stuff and make sure that uh, we get it under control yeah the
0: yeah it, it is it is interesting to note that this is from that, the, that this is from the uh man who is uh Technically speaking, in charge of one of the biggest arsenals of nuclear weapons in the world. Admittedly, they are they are taking more positive steps to reduce that arsenal, but it's still a sizable one. Uh, I can see why a lot of people would I can see why a lot of people would be saying, uh, "Do as you do as you do as you say." uh yeah. what what's, what's the case for do as you do
1: do, do as, as i say not as i practice do practice what
0: you preach that's the word i'm practice that's what i preach phrase what i'm much looking, what you that I'm looking for I, 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 yeah I, and um yeah, yeah there's the, there's an the north korean situation and there's also the iranian situation where uh, where, where uh, there is the uh, fear the fear going on that around that iran is allegedly trying to build a bomb they maintain it's for electricity generation uh, and there's there's diplomatic toing and froing on in that respect as well. But getting back to North Korea, uh, I remember I remember there was one particular instance where the North Korean ambassador to Canberra was called into uh, Foreign Affairs Department for a uh, consultation. I believe the technical term is on this pati- on this particular issue. Uh, wh- yeah, Some time ago this was now back probably back when the uh, first dong two launch. And uh, they had taken the the uh, the Australian the the Australian diplomatic staff had taken the, uh, the effort of getting that particular the Korean Peninsula segment of the famous Earth at Night photomontage blown up to easel size and bunged on a and and bunged on or so the, as the ambassador walking in he'd see this shot. The South is the southern half of the peninsula is clearly visible. Because of all the streetlights and such, but the north is practically darkness. They wanted to make the point that because the because the north was in such was in such darkness that they weren't that that, that it showed they weren't necessarily allocating their resources in the in the, the most mutually beneficial way. And maybe that's something that they should look at as in, instead of trying to build missiles, they could lob at Alaska or something like that. But they, that's it's i've also seen i've also seen those sorts of shots used in various other various other completely irrelevant issues as well for uh, completely different reasons so it it it, it can, it's 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 one of those things that you can that can be used in, uh a few different ways it was used in that particular way in that particular instance i don't necessarily think it was all that entirely successful uh and it, it it's uh it's 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 basically uh what am i what am i what am i where am i going with that thought it's it's basically uh they've decided that 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 the uh north koreans have decided on a particular course of action and uh, the the uh rest of the uh the rest of the B may be uh putting out all sorts of um input tuning suggestions I don't think they could go to outright threats yet. That's a, that's a too far down the track. Uh, to uh, try to suggest to the North Koreans that maybe this isn't such a good idea, but they'd probably, they'd, they'd, they'd probably just be roundly ignored.
1: Well, that's the thing. I think at some stage, North Korea, Kim Jong-il has to really sit down and say, hey, whether or not they want to... Further, their ballistic missile test is another is one thing or another. It doesn't matter. The simple fact of the matter is that this is seen as a clear provocation, and I don't think anyone in their right mind can sit there and say that the Western world won't respond in some fashion and that, that response I don't think at any stage is just going to be, oh, yeah, okay, so what? What's on the TV? I think we're going to see some interesting developments. Not the powers that be it anyway, but uh, my punter might think that. Uh. Very true. But uh, this is certainly going to be a situation to watch, I think, uh, because uh, North Korea really do uh, seem to be enjoying uh, pressing the buttons of uh, of certain Western world leaders. In more ways than one. Just what we thought we might do before we round out this week's episode of the Sunday Talk is just to have a look at some of the uh, the smaller scale uh, news items that have come across the Sunday Talk news desk over the last seven days. And of course, one of them that David and I have been watching very intently and, and refreshing our NetBank web screens every day for the past week is, of course, the fact that the uh, $900 cash stimulus payments uh, from the federal government as part of the latest $42 billion stimulus package have now started flowing into uh, into the coffers of... Uh, ordinary men and women, David. Has your nine hundred dollars turned up in the bank yet?
0: Not yet, no. And it is the it is basically all I can do not to get impatient about it because there's supposed to be a six week block for these things to go out. So, but if you the, the advertising is saying if you haven't got your money by the sixteenth of May, then start complaining. Well, but it, but yeah. it is it is yeah when you when you're seeing media reports of check of checks being bundled up in mailbags, when you're hearing about people when you're hearing about people ringing the phone in saying yes i've got my money i'm off to I'm off to spend it to keep the economy going you think yeah Come along. (laughs) Where's my share? I'm getting a bit impatient here. I want to
1: help out as best I can. I'm missing the party here. (laughs) (laughs) I like this quote here from the ABC where they say that the tax office says it has asked people to be patient, not to call about the progress of payments until after May 16 because of the large numbers of payments it is making. Uh, I like the idea of uh, hundreds of people bringing up on mass, saying, oh, "Excuse me, I haven't got my tax return payment yet. I want my
0: nine hundred dollars, please." Well, that's the thing. They're also running a and the other part. They're also running about this is they have they've opened up a. Uh, I wasn't. I was going to say amnesty window, but that doesn't quite make sense. They've opened up a window. Where if you didn't put in a tax return for two thousand seven, two thousand eight, which is what the stimulus payments are being based on, you can get your tax return in before thirtieth of June two thousand nine, and qualify for the stimulus. Now I'm thinking, yeah, there's a, there's a, the tax law specifically states that that uh, tax returns have to be in by the thirty first of October. In this case, thirty first of October two thousand eight, there would there would be uh, fines or. Uh, at least reprimands involved in uh, not getting a not getting a tax return in this time round. They say they won't. They say they won't find people, but it's it's uh, still uh, not beyond the realms of possibility that the opposition will get a the opposition. All the tabloid shows would get a a letter from a constituent saying I put my tax I put my tax return in to get the stimulus payment and they've taken the lot off me with a big fine. <laughs>
1: So the big question at the moment, though, is what will Australians plan to do with their stimulus money? And here's just a short video clip here from the ABC uh, try- attempting to answer that question.
0: I spent a bit of it, but i probably put it in the bank because I have a hard time making rental payments at the moment. It's pretty hard to find a cheap okay. place, so I'm paying a bit more than I should at the moment. So yeah, I think I'm going to buy a camera. I want to start getting into photography, so it might be a nice way in just to buy a new camera. I'm going that? to buy new ties for my car and on a holiday. Hmm. Good. What I will do with that $900 is invest it and save it because I get some very generous idea the government has to try and compensate for difficult economic and financial matters. I really need the money to pay off my credit card at the moment. The interest is killing me. We'll be putting
1: it in the bank. Yeah. yeah. Why is that? Um, just. <laughs> just because we need the money at the moment, so it's staying in the bank. So, yes, some very uh, wise words there, people using it to pay off credit card debt, using it to put in the bank, uh, all various very good measures. So, yes, watch out for your $900 stimulus payment over the next four or five weeks. Uh, in other news, this week, new opposition, uh, Queensland opposition leader, John Paul Langbrook, has dropped two MPs from the front bench and elevated two former backbenchers as he came out and uh, unveiled his shadow ministry to take on Premier Bly's Labour cabinet. David, you've obviously seen the new shadow ministry. What are your thoughts?
0: Well, the first thought was it was interesting that um, the two members who were dropped were two of the longest-serving members that were returned to... Parliament in the last in the uh, last election. Mike Corn, member for Central South, he's one of the uh, former ministers who will now be sitting on the backbench. He's also pre- and uh, and Langbrock has also promoted two new newer members. I don't know if they were. I, don't know, I was going to say newly elected, but I'm not certain about that. Some newer some newer members into the ministry. Uh, he was he's basically adjusting the mix of youth and experience, which is. A reasonable, a reasonable suggestion. The interesting, I, the interesting thing I did note is that he has not he has not correlated his shadow portfolios into the same lines as the uh, ministry, the the government ministry. There are, uh, for example, there are some there, there are some there are some portfolios that have been combined in, in, the, in the new. Um, Government ministry, the shadow portfolios remain separate. So some ministers will be fielding questions from three shadow members, which is going to m- will make question time a little bit more interesting, I think. Whether uh, whether they will actually uh, take the whether they'll actually
1: take the fight up remains to be seen. No, well, it'll be interesting to see. But uh, no, so Lane Brooks unveiled the new Queensland shadow cabinet. Just a few uh, sort of highlights. Uh, the sh- the uh, Lawrence Springborg, will, uh, who's also Deputy LNP Leader, will be Shadow Attorney-General and Opposition Spokesperson on Industrial Relations and Trade. Former Deputy Leader Mark McArdle keeps the Shadow Health portfolio. <coughs> Tim Nichols will be the LNP spokesman on Treasury, Employment and Excuse me. Economic Development and David dying in the corner. <laughs> Our former frontbenchers Mike Horan and Rob Messenger have lost their portfolios to become Opposition Whip and Deputy Whip, respectively. Noose's Glenn Elms becomes the Opposition spokesman on Climate Change. And Bundaberg's Jack Dempsey will be Opposition Child Safety and Sports spokesman former deputy leader Bruce Flegg returns to the opposition front bench in the education portfolio. So um, he seems. Fa- John Paul Langbrook seems fairly confident they're going to hold the Labor government accountable. Uh, obviously the next three years will uh, prove whether he's right or not. Uh, and also just in, uh, in other sort of minor news, uh, of course last week we mentioned that this weekend's a big weekend for science fiction fans, uh, the new three-part Red Dwarf miniseries Back to Earth has started airing on the digital channel Dave in the United Kingdom. No relation. (laughs) Episode 1 aired early hours this morning, Brisbane time. Uh, Well, this is at the time we're recording. Obviously, by the time you're hearing this, episode 2 will have already aired uh, and episode 3 will be on the way. So this weekend, big weekend for Dwarfers, uh, as Lister, Rimmer, Crichton and Kat uh, emerge nine years after the – sort of gripping finale to only the good, and uh, we find out exactly what happened. I have to say I've downloaded the first episode already and have watched the first couple of minutes just to see if the quality was any good. And I have to say they've made very good use of these new red 4K cameras that they're using to film in super-duper high def. It's 4,000 vertical lines of resolution. So they've uh, they've done pretty well.
0: Okay. what? How many horizontal lines does that make
1: it out of this? I have no idea. I have no idea.
0: Yeah, because that's the because that's the interesting thing. Uh, high definition is being sold on a number of being sold on a number of horizontal lines. You uh, hear talk about 1080p. That's one thousand and eighty horizontal lines, progressive
1: scan. No, that's yeah, but that's the vertical resolution though of pixels on the vertical axis. Mm-hmm. You've got one hundred eighty pixels, and so with a four K camera, you've got four thousand pixels on the vertical axis. Horizontal yeah. axis. Oh, so
0: it's four thousand lines. I yes. See.
1: Yes, so um, 1080p is like, uh, for example, when you look at uh, something like Vanishing Point that we filmed last September, that had a resolution of 1920 by 1080. 1920 by 1080, 1080. That yeah, makes that's sense. it. sense. Yes, um, not to the listeners though, because remember this is radio, and you've just done hand gestures.
0: <laughs> well, yes, that would be a little—that is a little difficult, yeah, <laughs> as I'm sure as I'm sure guest three may be about to uh, testify. Good evening to you. Uh, yeah, but. Um... It it's it, it, it's it's interesting. It's interesting. What was I, I going to say? Yeah. Um, it's interesting that uh, the uh, new Doctor Who special is also uh, com- coming out this weekend. The uh, planet of the dead. Yes, in oh, just a few hours, actually. And I'm, and I'm told that's also been shot in, 10, in 1080p.
1: Yeah, they this is the first of the Doctor Who specials to be uh, filmed in uh, proper high def, uh, using the same camera setup as presumably what they use on Torchwood. And uh, so that airs in about, uh, what are we, 10 o'clock now? Yeah, about five or six hours' time it'll air. And, uh, of course, this is one of the... Uh, the last of the episodes to feature David Tennant in the title role, and according to Russell T. Davies, it's the last proper romp, good old-fashioned romp that David Tennant's Doctor gets to go on before we have the big final three episodes, which lead up to his regeneration into the 11th Doctor, Matt Jones. Smith. Matt Smith. Oh, dearie me. I'm getting all my names mixed up. Smith and Jones. Smith and I'm. Jones. Combs. So, uh, yes, yeah, so uh, this weekend, big weekend for Sci-Fi Nerds, and uh, so keep an eye out on Channel BT for... Uh, Red Dwarf, Doctor Who, Planet of the Dead, and uh, sure to uh, keep those download quotients uh, ticking over.
0: I'm still trying to figure out whether I need to see every grain of sand in Dubai in such detail, though.
1: Well, I'm sure we'll all find out in about six hours' time, David. <laughs> but, of course, if you're listening to the MP3 download of this, then you it's probably already gone, know. Yes. You probably have recounted every sand, grain of sand. <laughs> or maybe not. Maybe just not that ainly retentive. Hopefully not. Well, more power to you if you are. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this brings us to the end of what has been a very special episode of the Sunday Talk. Uh, episode 26, our Easter special. Uh, even though we didn't talk much about Easter, but it's been recorded at Easter, so let's make the Easter special anyway. That explains the slightly different audio texture to what you're listening to uh, here on this episode. David, how do you think the episode went?
0: I know I say it every week, and I usually mean it every week. But at this time, yeah, I think we've done particularly well. Uh, just just from the uh, ease and from the ease of the process, we've been able to achieve this week uh, without without being beset with all the usual technical hassles and internet dropouts and and uh, lines, line glitches, and such and such like. It's been it's been uh, Particularly easy to do this particular episode this week, all being in the same room together and being able to talk directly to each other instead of hmm. instead of uh, waiting for each other to finish over a Skype line and uh, where we only end up interrupting each other. It, this was this one has gone over. This one has gone over very well.
1: Yeah, and uh, even though we've had the uh, occasional interruptions in the background of cars and trains and related weather phenomena here at Brisbane, I think it just gives the whole episode a, an interesting. A, a different sound we'd a different, be baking a different... by now if I had the doors closed well that's very true that's uh, one of the things that when I record up in Harvey Bay um, you have to be locked in a tomb basically which is okay because I've got air conditioning um, and it just means I had to make sure I had a nice 30 second sound of the ambience of the room with no noise just the air conditioner so I could filter that out in post-production but uh, hey to be perfectly honest as we hear a train pull in uh, can everyone hear that? Possibly. I don't know. Who knows? Probably not. Probably not. We can. And uh, it might be picked up by the microphone. But uh, suffice it to say, I think tonight's episode is uh, probably it's not going to sound our best, but I think it'll sound quite good considering the circumstances under which we recorded it. A little more natural. Yeah, true. Yeah, true. And it certainly makes a change from, you think, back 10 years ago with all of our radio drama recordings Oh yeah. uh, where you had to really go for that studio feel. You had to Push, push that studio feel so hard to, to make sure that you got really good sounding, clean, raw audio. number of yeah. times we stopped for trains and airplanes and, and automobiles dogs. and dogs and neighbors. Oh, dear.
0: Oh, yeah. I still, still remember that famous time we were recording here while next door we're having new drains installed.
1: Oh, yes. <laughs> it was good fun. It was good fun. Uh, but if you want to find us on the web, since we're now wrapping up and uh, it's time to move on, uh, you might want to have a bit of a Sunday Talk fix in between episodes. Uh, you can find us on the interwebs at www.thesundaytalk.com where you can access past episodes, our discussion forum. We've actually, I've actually made a few changes to the website. You'll notice now we have our Twitter feed embedded into the front page. Uh, should uh, make it easy for you guys to see when the latest news updates are, are coming around and when we're recording episodes and so on. Uh, you can uh, also access uh, – uh, we've uh, once again uh, gone up for the Blogger's Choice Awards now for 2009 in the Best Podcast category. So if you want to vote for us in the Best Podcast category at the Blogger's Choice Awards for 2009, uh, you can find that on the main Sunday Talk website as well. You can also find our PayPal donation button if you'd like to help out with the costs running in the podcast or any of the server hosting fees. Uh, you can also access official – Sunday Talk merchandise to our Cafe Press store. And uh, also, uh, if you can't remember the web address for the Go to Assist Express campaign, there's a nice little banner out at the bottom of the page there that you can click on it'll take you straight there to grab that 30-day free trial. Well, David, thank you very much for uh, hosting this special Easter episode of the Sunday Talk at your place. I'm very much appreciative of it. You're welcome. Always a pleasure. And uh, we hope all of you will join us next weekend uh, for on the 19th, I believe it is. Uh, Yep, 19th it is. Sunday the 19th for the live recording of episode 27 of the Sunday Talk. Uh, That's assuming I'm conscious. I've got a housewarming to go to the night before, so it's entirely possible I might uh, be dead. Uh, I hope not, Uh, but we'll see what happens. But next weekend, the plan is to record episode 27 of the Sunday Talk. Well, we might go out, as always, with the wonderful musical tones of Mr. Mark Blasco, who composed the wonderful Sunday Talk theme package that you hear each and every week on the show. My name is Matthew Kopelke. Thank you very much for listening to Episode 26. Join us next Sunday at 8 a.m. for the live recording of Episode 27. Goodbye, Australia. See you later, everyone.